Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Piotr Schokes and today I'm joined by Avi Schleim, Fellow of the British Academy and Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford. He's one of Israel's new historians and we will discuss what that means and how Israel's history has influenced the country's contemporary politics. We have no other way than to proceed. This is a historic juncture. If we miss that, we may create a tragedy for future generations. There was uh, not very much room for, for uh, putting any of the ideas or hopes or aspirations that I had in mind. I said we don't want to be passive victims of history. We want to challenge, to intervene, to intrude, to participate and to present our own narrative, to speak for ourselves. What I would do as Prime Minister is to do anything responsible uh, within the rule of law to stop and nullify the dangers that emanate from this agreement. Why the sensitivities? We are the key to peace, to your peace process as Palestinians. And you must realize the new facts of life. Avi, you are one of the so-called new historians. You're one of four new historians writing revisionist history. So could you go into what revisionist history is in the Israeli context? Let us start with the general context of what is revisionist history before we turn to the Israeli context. Uh, revisionist history, as the name suggests, is history which challenges the received wisdom, the conventional wisdom on the subject. All national movements have rewritten the history. I think that there are certain common characteristics to all nationalist versions of history. They tend to be simplistic, selective, and self-serving. And I remind myself of these qualities as the three S's, simplistic, selective, and uh, self-serving. Oxford Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin used to say that the Jews are like any other people, only more so. And by the same token, Zionist history is like any other nationalist version of history, only more so. In short, revisionist history, in the case of Israel, challenges the standard Zionist version of the origins, the development, and the nature of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And what would then the core differences be in origins to nature and the history? The core difference between old history and new history is that old history reflected and echoed and reinforced the official version about the past. It was uncritical of the official version. And more than that, old history tended to glorify Israel, and it painted a picture of the past which, in which Israel was portrayed as heroic, just, and holding the moral high ground. Whereas new history looks at the conflicting versions of the Arab-Israeli conflict and subjects them to critical analysis in the light of the uh, available evidence, and then dismisses any notion, however deeply cherished, which doesn't stand up to historical scrutiny. And, and this brings me to the other core 
the second core difference between old history and new history. And that is that when old history was written, the documents were not available. The primary sources were not available. In addition, a lot of the old history was written by participants, by Zionist activists who took part in the struggle for independence. Would that then specifically be the struggle in 1948, or would that be like the struggle of independence also from the beginning of the 20th century? From the beginning of the 20th century. The, the debate is about the whole of Israel's past. And the new historians uh, had the benefit of access to primary sources. So Israel has adopted and used to apply very liberally the British 30-year rule, which governs the review and declassification of official documents. After 30 years from the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, the, the Israel State Archives began to release the documents. When my colleagues and I uh, began our research in the early 1980s, we had access to the official record, to the documents of the foreign ministry and of the Ministry of um, Defense and of the IDF, the Israeli army. And that's a, a critical difference. And one Israeli scholar, Yoshua Parat, distinguished not between old history and new history, but prehistory, which was written without access to the documents, uh, and history which was written with access to documents. And I have to say, to Israel's credit, that it used to uh, open up its records to critical scrutiny and thereby made possible critical studies of Israel's past, such as uh, the ones that my colleagues and I have written. The so-called four new historians is yourself, Ilan Pape, and two more whose name I have just now forgotten. Yes. But what all of you wrote the book each on challenging one of the truths or one of the accepted truths of the formation of the Israeli state. So in 1988, the 40th anniversary of the state of Israel, four new books were published. The first one was by Simcha Flapan, and it was called The Birth of Israel, Myth and Reality. Flapan was not a, an academic. He was not a professional historian. He was the head of the Arab department of Mapam, the left-wing um, party. He had a political um, agenda, which he stated at the beginning, which is to undermine the structure of Israeli propaganda about the conflict. And instead of having chapters, he had myths. Each uh, chapter uh, tried to demolish one of the myths about the birth of Israel. The second book was by Ilan Pape. It was called Britain and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1948 to 19. 51. This book was based on a defil thesis that Ilan Pape had written at the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College. 
1984, I was the external examiner for the thesis. I was at Reading University at the time, mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. the ideas of the new history are in that thesis and in that book in one form or another. So Ilan Pate was the real pioneer of uh, new history. And although I'm older than him, he had a profound um, uh, in, uh, influence on my trajectory as a historian. The third new historian was Benny Morris, whose book was called The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, 1947 to 1949. Uh, this book was based on meticulous research in all the Israeli archives, uh, and it showed that Israel was largely responsible for creating the Palestinian refugee problem. In other words, that the Palestinians in 1948 didn't just leave of their own accord or on orders from above from their leaders, but that they were expelled. Because the old history before that argued that the Palestinians had left on their own accord, correct? Yes. Okay. And that they, um, they left on orders from their leaders in the expectation of a triumphal return. And this was a very important claim because uh, it had political um, uh, consequences, because if Israel was not responsible for making the Palestinian refugees, th three quarters of a million refugees, then Israel uh, was not responsible for uh, res resolving the problem. The last new historian was <laughs> myself, and I, uh, my book was called Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdallah, the Zionist Movement, and the Partition of Palestine. In this book, I advanced the thesis that by 1947, a tacit agreement had been reached be between King Abdallah of Jordan and the Zionist Movement to divide up mandatory Palestine between themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. And this is what happened in the 48, in the 1948 war, the losers were the Palestinians. More than half of the Palestinian population became refugees and the name Palestine was wiped off the map. The winners were the state of Israel, which extended its borders way beyond the borders suggested by the UN partition resolution. And the other winner was King Abdallah of Jordan, who captured the West Bank and later annexed it to his kingdom. So these are the four new historians. Because that also brings me on to another question or another thing I wanted to raise, because central to the founding myth of Israel is the fact that the Israelis fought off the United Arab Armies in 1948 when they announced statehood. But as you say, there was already a deal between the Jordanians and the Zionists before that. So both of these cannot be true. So would you go a bit more into the idea of the unity of the Arab armies and what Israel had to, the Zionists rather, 
had to fight when they wanted to create the state? Well, let me go back to your earlier question about was the debate about the whole of Zionist history or only about 1948? Um, and my answer to that is that the de debate between the Israeli historians revolved very much around the 1948 war. And there were five bones of contention, five main bones of contention uh, in this debate. The first one was Britain's aims towards the end of the Palestine mandate. Uh, the old historians say that Britain's aim at the end of the mandate were to prevent the birth of a Jewish state by arming and inciting and encouraging uh, Britain's Arab clients to invade Palestine and strangle the Jewish state at birth. The new historians, particularly Ilan Pape and I, argue that Britain was uh, resigned to the emergence of a Jewish state, but that it was opposed to the birth of a Palestinian state because in British eyes, a Palestinian state was synonymous with a Mufti state, and the Mufti was a renegade who had thrown his, his lot in with uh, Hitler. So Britain's real policy was to um, encourage its client, King Abdallah, to invade Palestine upon end of the mandate and to conquer the heartland of Arab uh, Palestine and succeeded in avoiding, avoiding the birth of a Palestinian state. Uh, the second issue I've already touched on, what was the cause of the Palestinian exodus in 1948? Did they go or were they pushed? The old historians say the Palestinians just left. It had nothing to do with Israel. The new historians say they were pushed. And the real authority on this is Benny Morris, and his book uh, treated this question as thoroughly and accurately as it's ever likely to be. And the third bone of contention concerns the military balance in 1948. And uh, it's crucial element of the collective Israeli memory about 1948 that we were the few against the many that we were a tiny little community surrounded by a huge Arab force and that it was a battle between a Jewish David against an Arab Goliath. But our empirical research has demonstrated that Israel always had uh, the edge over the Arab ad adversaries in the Palestine theater. The fourth bone of contention is Arab war aims in 1948. And this brings me to your question of what was the situation on the Arab side. The conventional wisdom in Israel is that the seven Arab armies who invaded Palestine upon expiry of the mandate were united by two aims. One was genocide, to throw 
the Jews into the sea, and two was politicide. Politicide is the destruction of a polity. You wouldn't find this word in a, a dictionary, but it's appropriate to the Israeli perception of Arab war aims, that their aim was to strangle the Jewish state at birth. But our research has shown that the Arab coalition facing Israel in 1948 was one of the most disorganized, uh, bitterly divided, and ramshackle coalitions in the history of warfare. So although there was an Arab League, there was an Arab invasion plan, each of the invading armies served a national agenda or a dynastic agenda rather than operating within an overall plan of invasion. And in particular, there were dynastic rivalries between King Farouk of Egypt and King Abdallah of Jordan. And it was the inability of the Arabs to coordinate the diplomatic and military strategy, which was a very important factor in the Arab defeat. My book fits very much into this issue in the debate because the conventional view of the Arab-Israeli conflict in the first half of the 20th century is that there was Arabs and Palestinians on one side and the Jews on the other side, whereas what I have argued is that below the surface, the real lineup was Hashemite rulers of Jordan and Zionists on one side against Palestinian nationalists and Arabs on the other side. But Abdallah, his whole policy was based on the emergence of a Jewish state. So he most certainly did not set out to um, destroy the new Israeli uh, uh, polity, but on the contrary, he came to a tacit agreement, uh, agreement with, with the Zionist leaders that they will keep out of each other's way as much as possible. The fifth and final bone of contention is why did the uh, conflict persist for decades after the guns fell silent? The Zionist version can be summed up in two words, Arab intransigence. According to this view, the Zionist leaders strove for peace with the Arabs with all their heart and all their might, might, but there was no one to talk to on the Arab side. Whereas I argue that Arab leaders were pragmatic and after the end of the war, King Abdallah went all out to reach a settlement and he didn't succeed. And he was eventually assassinated by a Palestinian nationalist. Hosni Zain, the Syrian leader, in 1949, after capturing power in a coup, offered Israel complete peace and normalization, the immediate exchange of um, uh, ambassadors, and the absorption of a quarter of a million Palestinian refugees in Syria. But um, Israel did not take him 
up on his offer. What would Israel have to give in return for that? Israel would have had to agree that the border between Israel and Syria would go down the middle of the Jordan River and down the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So Zain had his territorial demands and Israel was not prepared to meet them. Abdallah had his ter territorial demands as well from Israel. He wanted a passage to the Gaza Strip and to the Mediterranean Sea, which he didn't have because Jordan was landlocked. So each Arab leader had his demands. Uh, Ben-Gurion refused to meet these demands. You can uh, pass a judgment on whether it was a wise decision or not wise decision by Ben-Gurion not to make any territorial concessions for peace. But what I think I have proved is that the Jewish, the Israeli claim that there was no one to talk to uh, is false. Because the, the purpose of the old history, as you as you've made clear, is to develop a kind of national history for, for Israel based on certain myths. And for Sima Flapan, there was a very clear political motivation behind writing his book about the myths of of Israel's birth. But for the three others of you, was it was there also a purpose? Was it mostly driven by curiosity and a new access to the archives which would be opened in the late seventies? Simcha Flapan was a politician with a stated and explicit political agenda, an anti-Zionist agenda, whereas Ilan Pape, Benny Morris and myself are Western educated scholars. All three of us use um, traditional Western methods of historical scholarship of relying very heavily on archival research. The question of what are the intentions of each historian is much more difficult to answer. Uh, and I can only speak for myself. I would say I did have an agenda in writing Collusion of, Across the Jordan, but it wasn't a political agenda. My critics uh, have not been able to produce any evidence of a political agenda. I did have an agenda, which is that of a historian. I wanted to write a good history book, and I wanted to write about the Arab-Israeli conflict in that period in as much detail as possible, as accurately as possible, and to make it as interesting as possible. So I consciously set out to write not just for other scholars, but to try to reach uh, a broader public. You mentioned that you faced some resistance from Ephraim Karsh and also Shabtai Tzvet. But on the other hand, how were your books and the books of the New Historians received in, in Israel more broadly? Like, Did it create new political openings for discussion? Or was the reaction very negative because you basically challenged the very fundamental truth on which people had based much of their life and much of their relationship with the government. How, how did people approach the idea or approach the new information which you and the three others had, had published? So, so all four books appeared in uh, 1948, 1998, and the reaction in Israel was one of shock horror, mm -hmm. of utter surprise. Uh, Israelis 
were completely stunned uh, by uh, this literature, by these revelations. And um, it went completely against the collective memory of uh, Israelis. So the initial reaction was one of surprise, and that was followed by a very negative reaction to the new history. The first critic was Shabtai Tevet, the biographer of Ben-Gurion, and he published four full pages, four articles, one page each in Haaretz, uh, under the heading, The New Historians. And it was uh, an attack, a direct attack on all of us. And uh, he had two main charges. In his charges, there are two charge sheet against the New Historians, there are two main items. One was that we had a political axe to grind, and therefore our work was suspect and tendentious and serve a political agenda, a left-wing political agenda, an anti-Israeli political agenda. Uh, but he wasn't able to produce evidence for that. And his second charge was that our work was professionally flawed that um, we um, distorted the evidence, we misused evidence, we um, deliberately were deliber deliberately selective in picking out just bits out of the historical record that supported our arguments. And went on to say that in any case, one cannot write with authority on the Arab-Israeli conflict, because only Israel releases its records for inspection. The Arab countries don't release their records, and therefore there is an asymmetry in the sources that are available. And my answer to that, that indeed there is an asymmetry, but a historian can only write history on the basis of the sources that are available. We can't write history on the basis of the sources that are not available. So we had to do, make do with what was available. And as I say to my doctoral students when they reach a dark corner in their research and get demoralized, I say to them, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Was the new history eventually also, for example, taught in schools or has it or has it remained fairly fringe among among Israel or Israeli historians? Uh, history is not written in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Historians are part of their society. Uh, and uh, we were lucky in that we were doing our research in the aftermath of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. This was the, the first war in Israel's history, which provoked political dissent even while the war was uh, going on. And it was a very controversial war, a war of deception, which opened up a debate, which opened up a space in of looking critically back at Israel's history. And we were the beneficiaries. We moved into this political space uh, and uh, put forward our findings. The initial reaction was very, very hostile. 
but gradually people began to engage with our findings. And the fact that they engage with the new history is a sign of maturity of Israeli society, that Israelis were prepared, some Israelis were prepared to look at the history warts uh, and all, and not to cling to the heroic version of Israel's uh, history. And then there was uh, the Labour Party came back into power under its Haq Rabin in 1992. And in 1993, Israel um, signed the Oslo Peace Accord. And the Oslo decade was very uh, supportive of the new history. And the education minister under Rabin ordered rewriting history textbooks for secondary schools. And they incorporated some of the findings of the new history, particularly um, the findings of uh, Benny Morris, that Israel was in part responsible for the Palestinian refugee problem. This, I don't want to exaggerate. It's not that the old history uh, was jettisoned and our version was uh, used to replace it. It's just that uh, there was more openness about the past and the new textbooks um, invited Israeli school kids to think what it would have been like for them to have been children during uh, that war. So it opened up the space for debate. But then in, um, then the, the Likud came back to power was that Netanyahu in 1996? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, because that was, that was something I wanted to raise as well, because you said Israel had matured. And I was wondering, do you still believe that is the case, that you know, Netanyahu has been in power for a very long time and has been in charge of a drift to the right politically in the country? Is it still the case that you know, there is political acceptance for the new history? Or has, or has there been much more resistance from the top? And related to that as well is the fact that Netanyahu is the first Israeli prime minister, if I recall correctly, who was born in the Israel as a state. And do you think that his political opinions might be informed by the fact that he grew up with this very nationalist history? Yeah. of? And do you think those two are related? And do you also then think that under his rule that the questions which are allowed to raise about Israeli nationalism, they are not allowed to be raised anymore? Benjamin Netanyahu was the first Israeli prime minister to be born in Israel. But more important than that, he grew up in a hardline revisionist Zionist home. Um, and his whole upbringing was um, very, very nationalistic, very dogmatic. Uh, and he wrote a book about Israel's place in the world, uh, a very long book. It gives an undiluted, unreconstructed version of um, events. Uh, and he, there isn't a single ref, positive reference to Arab history, Arab culture, or Arab uh, society. So, Netanyahu is an ultra-nationalist, 
uh, an Arab hater, and um, he was elected first elected in 1996 after the murder of Yitzhak Rabin by an Israeli uh, fanatic, and he spent his first term in office from 96 to 99 in a very successful attempt to freeze, to subvert, and undermine the Oslo Accords. And in 2000, the Second Intifada broke out, and there was a return to violence, uh, real depolarization again between Israelis and Palestinians. And in this new political context, the new history was dismissed. It was no longer taken seriously, and um, it was no longer an influence on the educational system. New Likud education ministers removed the more liberal textbooks and replaced them with old history. So just as the political climate after the first Israeli invasion of Lebanon was conducive to the growth and success and influence of the new history, so the second intifada worked to undermine the new history and to undermine the credibility of uh, the new his historians. And um, earlier on, you also mentioned that Israel used the words used to apply liberally the British rule on their archives, and you used the, the term used to a few times. Mm. It, was that on purpose or was that just speaking? Mm. Is, is it the case now that there's less access as, to the Israeli archives? Absolutely, because Netanyahu doesn't only have his version of history, which is uh, very nationalistic, but he doesn't have an open mind and he wouldn't listen to any other points of view. If he had just had a closed mind, that wouldn't matter. What matters is that he is the prime minister and has been prime minister for the last more than a decade. The state archive falls under the prime minister's office. So the state archivist is uh, account uh, reports to him. And Israel, under labor, Israel had a liberal policy on information. The 30-year rule used to be applied very liberally, but it ceased to be under Netanyahu. Netanyahu actually closed the reading room in the state archives. So whereas my colleagues and I used to go to the reading room in the state archives, read the catalogues, and order files that used to be brought to us physically, and we would read the files. Now Netanyahu gave the order to close the reading room in the state archives. Now there are no longer catalogues, so you don't know where to look for things. But you can order, place orders on the internet by email uh, for certain files. So you have to know the catalog numbers for the file, and then you may or may not get them. But this is not the same as free access. But it's even worse than that. It's not just that uh, access to the archives has been drastically uh, reduced. An official from the Defense Ministry 
goes around all the archives and tries to locate documents that are not to Israel's liking, not to the government's liking, to take them out altogether. So whereas and to permanently destroy them, or is it to hide them in a you know a deeper cellar? That, that I don't know, but to actually remove them from the files, so that uh, Benny Morris, you couldn't argue with him because he would quote a specific document. But now, if the document isn't there physically, then you can't rely, rely on it. So Netanyahu isn't just a, a nationalist, but he's anti-scholarship, anti-liberal historians. The notion of new history as a group uh, no longer exists in Israel. No one talks about the new historians or about new history. But are there and, still and, sort of descendants of that train of thought? Are there still people who, you know, don't necessarily have an anti-government perspective on history, but rather like a government critical perspective on history? Is, is that still possible to do the research in this context? Or has it completely, has it become impossible? It is possible to do research. And there are a lot of young Israeli historians, very, very good Israeli historians, and many of them know Arabic well as well. Uh, they are doing a great deal of uh, original research on the history of the British mandate and on the history of the state of Israel. That brings me to another question which I had, which you alluded to earlier, because we had the Oslo peace, oh, sorry, the Oslo Accords in 1993, but then when Netanyahu came to power in 1996, he did his best to undermine them as much as he could. But in 1994, Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin, and one more, again, whose name I have forgotten, they, re- yes, they, they received the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Do you think it was justified for them to receive the Nobel Peace Prize? Because I think, you know, looking at it in a very teleological way, now the Oslo Accords have failed, considering the current situation in Palestine. But at the time, was it a significant enough breakthrough which then was undermined? I believe that the granting the Nobel Peace Prize to Rabin, Paris and Arafat on the strength of the Oslo Peace Accords was justified at the time, because for all its shortcomings, the Oslo Accord was historic breakthrough in the history of the conflict, because it was the first agreement ever between the two principal parties to the conflict, Israel and the Palestinians. The deep flaws in Oslo, in the Oslo Accord, was that it put to one side all the most fundamental issues in this conflict. It put them to one side, the status of Jerusalem, the right of return of the 1948 Palestinian uh, refugees, the status of the Jewish settlements on occupied Palestinian land, and the borders of the uh, future Palestinian entity. All these issues were not addressed. They were left for negotiation towards the end of the five-year transition uh, period. But before the end of the transition period, the whole of the Oslo peace process collapsed. 
And in the end, Israel did not use the Oslo Accord in order to end the occupation, but to repackage the occupation. And the Israeli version of why the Oslo peace process collapsed is that it was the Palestinian return to violence. Uh, my and Ilan Pape's view is that Israel was responsible for the collapse of the Oslo peace process because under the Likud and under Netanyahu, Israel reneged on its part of the bargain. And if you press me to explain the reason for the breakdown of the Oslo peace process, in one word, I can do it. And the word is settlements. Israeli settlements on the West Bank, because Israeli settlements on the West Bank, which keep expanding even as we speak, are not about making peace with the Palestinians. It's about stealing more and more land from the Palestinians. Land grabbing and peacemaking don't go together. It's one, either one or the other. And by its behavior under the Likud, under the Israeli right, Israel has shown very clearly that it is more interested in land grabbing than it is in making peace with the Palestinians. Then I have one final question, which will pretty much bring us back to where we began, because I know you have to leave soon. Do you think that the nationalist history, which Israel had created for itself, played a role in the ending of the peace accords? Because they had created a history of themselves being fair actors and the Arabs and the Palestinians being the intransigent actors. Did that then allow them to act in, you know, what to outsiders seems like a very unjustifiable and very, in a way which seemed to break the promises, but they could justify to themselves because of the, the discourse they had created of their relationship between themselves and the Palestinians. Do you understand the question? Uh, yes, I think I do. And I, I think that you have a point there, that official history uh, is not the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. It's politically motivated. Yeah. Again, as I said at the beginning, Israel is not unique in this respect. All states be build a mythology around them. All states have a version of the past which is self-serving and usually sanctimonious as well. Indeed, nationalist versions of history have two distinct political objectives. One objective is to unite the whole of society behind the regime, behind the government, by projecting a notion of them and us, that they threaten us, they are the enemy. And the other purpose of nationalist versions of history, and particularly Zionist history, is to project a positive image of the country to the outside world. And so Zionist official history has had this polarizing effect in the Middle East of dividing the region into them and us. The Rabin years, though just the exception rather than the rule, it was the only period, Rabin was the only prime minister in Israel's history 
went forward towards the Palestinians on the political front, but he didn't go very far and he didn't achieve enough. And we don't know what would have happened if Rabin had not been assassinated. But it was the only uh, period in Israel's history which was an attempt to get away from the burden of history, not to continue to be enthralled to the past, but to try something new, an experiment in Palestinian self-government leading to reconciliation. After the assassination of Rabin, there was a um, return to fundamentalist Israeli positions of us and them, we are in the right, they are in the wrong, and, the only, and there is no Palestinian partner for peace, and the only way forward is for Israel to uh, acquire more and more military power and to oppress the Palestinians. So my conclusion is that Israel, under the present leadership, nationalist leadership, is going nowhere. Thank you for listening to this episode of Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. Join us for the next episode when we will discuss the history, the culture, and the sexual questions raised by Bach Shabazi, the dancing boys of Afghanistan. Almanac is a student-run initiative at the Middle East Centre in the University of Oxford. The opinions expressed in the podcast do not in any way represent the official opinions of the University or of the Middle East Centre. It is edited and hosted by myself, Gilles Hokers, with the invaluable aid of Lily Sullivan, Felix Walker, Michael Mimari, Hazar Madah, Max Randall, Frederica Brockhoven, Iman Farah, Rose Johnson, 